0: My name is Billy. Billy, Billy. Billy. I was Bill when I got sober here in 1984, and then when I turned 65, I figured I could be Billy. (laughs) Uh, So all I'm going to do is tell you about me, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I don't want to tell you a drunk-a-log and I don't want to try to sell you anything. Um, I was born in Waco in 1948. I just turned 70. My mom and dad uh, were from Alabama. My dad went to Columbia University in New York and got a law degree, and my mom went to the University of Alabama and got a degree (coughs) in uh, human resource management. My dad was in the Air Force, and he got discharged after the war, World War II in Dallas, and uh, Waco was the closest place he could find a job. And he got a job with an insurance uh, defense firm and uh, mom got a job at the VA hospital. I was born there, my little brother was born there, dad liked to drink and uh, he didn't like working for the insurance companies, he decided he'd rather be a plaintiff's lawyer and uh, he was good at it. He was good at it. He was president of the Texas Trial Warriors Association at one time and they always talked about how I was going to come back and be his law partner. And uh, my high school sweetheart and I uh, gave each other a baby for graduation from high school (laughs) (laughs) dad said, uh, I'll support you guys if you'll make good grades in college. So I went to college up in Sherman, Texas and uh, was on the dean's list every semester and he supported us and uh, I drank a little bit. And then I moved back to Waco and got a job at the Employment Commission when I went in there looking for a job and then... uh, came down to Austin to go to law school. And uh, I remember standing on my front porch in uh, Sherman, Texas, saying, uh, I'm going to go to Austin, and I'm going to get stoned, and I'm going to stay stoned. (laughs) You know, I had been drinking since I was in junior high, getting real drunk. guys that I was in a carpool with in high school uh, took me out on Christmas vacation and said, we got something we think you're going to like. And they turned me on to a and I liked it. (laughs) And uh, I got out of law school and my dad smelled like bourbon all the time and I smelled like burnt rope and he told me, he said, (laughs) I don't think it's going to work for you to come back here and try to work. Uh, I didn't know what to do. A friend of mine that I grew up with in church, he went back to work in his parents' bank, and he got busted with a trunk full of reefer, and that was hard on him. So I stayed here in Austin, and I had been to Mexico on an exchange program while I was in law school for a couple of months where I rode a train down there and I was just coming apart. And I saw a goat herder walking by the railroad and I said, you know, I bet if I had some goats, life would be better. (laughs) And so I got some goats and we had a little house out by Bergstrom, and we had some goats and chickens and a garden, and it helped. And, uh, but I was drinking and smoking and playing music and then we bought a little house and I started working at the Texas Water Commission They wanted me to be there eight hours a day. (laughs) (laughs) And my little wife didn't like that. We were very codependent. And we bought a house where we could have our goats and chickens. And she got bored with that and got a job downtown at a, a cafe and started dating the waiters, Uh and uh, that made me mad. And then she uh, moved to California with a guy and left me with our eight-year-old boy. And uh, that really hurt our little boy, and it hurt me. And I sat around feeling sorry for myself for 10 years, getting loaded. That song, you picked the fine time to leave me Lucille. That was my theme song. And uh, I married again to a lawyer and we had a little boy nine months after we got married. uh, After two years, and then she was my law partner And after two years, she said, you know, if you don't quit smoking weed all the time, I'm going to have to leave. I don't care how much you drink. I said, well, you know, if I don't smoke weed all the time, there's not enough to drink. And uh, so she moved out. And I got a pound of skunk weed. (laughs) And that's the best I could do. And then... uh, Took up a, with a lady who had uh, children the same age as mine. She had been to Haight Ashbury for quite a while, and uh, all her children were illegitimate. And uh, I went over to pick up my second son at my s- second wife's house, and she was fixing breakfast for another guy. and making a lot of noise. And the next morning, uh, Alice said, you know, you really scared the kids last night. She said, I don't think you would have done that if you hadn't been drinking. Maybe you ought to look at your drinking. And I remember growing up in a home like that. And I remember seeing my mom and dad fighting over a pistol and my mom begging my dad to kill her, and uh, how terrified I was. And I thought, my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. To jump way down the road one time, I was with my mom and dad, and I mentioned that event, and my father looked at me and said, how could you make up such a terrible story?" My mom, with tears coming down her cheeks, said, uh, Lance, that really happened. He didn't remember it. That's one of the things that happens to alcoholics, you know. We get these blackouts and we don't know what's going on. So, I decided I needed to do something about my drinking. used to be a treatment center over on, uh, it was 19th Street then, it's MLK now. And uh, they'd been advertising a lot on TV and I went over there to see if they could help me. And uh, I had to talk to this psychiatrist over there. I checked my insurance. I had insurance with the State Bar of Texas, and it didn't cover chemical dependency. So he's, <clears throat> But we talked for a while. And he told me a little bit about the disease of alcoholism. And he told me about how his wife died. And that broke his heart. And he suggested sometimes we just have to move on he said something to me that seemed very strange he said most people don't have a problem with alcohol and I thought my goodness here's a PhD in the field of addiction and he's so naive that he thinks most people don't have a problem with alcohol (laughs) because my family did all my friends did everybody I knew did and I thought everybody did and uh I was wrong. And he was right. And and the big book that talks about how for most people is conviviality and good times with friends, but not so for us in those last days where we meet the hideous four horsemen. And uh, I said, well, I got cash. Can I pay you to fix me? And he said... <laughs> well, it doesn't quite work like that. He said, uh, why don't you uh, try AA and get you some insurance that would cover chemical depiction? If you need treatment, he said, uh, most people don't ever have a problem. But those who have a problem, most can quit on their own if you give them a sufficient reason. Those who can't... uh, Quit on their own, need a support group, and that's what AA is. Uh, some can't quit in AA and they need a treatment center like this is. We take them out of their environment and try to reboot them. And he said, uh, Some people just never get it, and they die from this disease. And if you go to AA long enough, you'll see that happen. Mm-hmm. Wow, Mr. Sunshine. (laughs) But he told me I should try to come into the Bolden Club. He said, that's where the burned out hippies go. He said, you'll fit right in. (laughs) So I came over here looking for it. He said it was next to a little church and I went up the street to that other church and looked around and finally got in here for a 3.30 meeting. And there was a red-headed policeman here just trying to get sober, and some other people. And uh, they talked about the disease of alcoholism. And I felt right at home. I felt like these people have got something. And I, they invited me to come back, and I did. The earliest meeting was at noon, and I was here at noon uh, every day. And after about two weeks, somebody said, you know, if you're not sure you're a real alcoholic, why don't you go out and try some controlled drinking? you know, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) I couldn't wait for that meeting to be over. uh, That night I had a bottle of wine in the backyard and I had a couple of joints of that skunkweed and I did them up. And it just wasn't doing it anymore. I said, uh, this is going to kill me. I need what those people have or I'm not going to make it. I could see it clear as a bell, you know, I was going to kill myself or kill somebody else or end up in this insane asylum, and uh, so I started coming back here. And I got assigned a sponsor uh, and started working the steps admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. I loved that we. You know, I've been trying to do it on my own for a long time. And uh, I was lonely. I was real lonely. And I felt like a zebra in a herd of horses. It just, nothing seemed to fit. we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable i was good with that i came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and uh, i thought you know i think alcoholics anonymous is that power in my life right now i think if i can slip in behind these people and do what they did, I can get what they've got. They told me that. If you do what we did, you'll get what we got. And then step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Well, whatever. (laughs) That one was kind of a mystery to me, but you know, okay. I'm turning it over Uh, you know I remember uh, being obsessed uh, with my second ex-wife and what she was doing and uh, my sponsor said you know you just got to turn that over to God so I, I remember walking down that street over there, back in those days, I went everywhere in a, a white robe made out of a sheet, barefooted, and I had a really good Jesus haircut, <laughs> and I was hooked up with a cult out of California called the Christ Family, and uh, they didn't drink, but they didn't smoke weed, but not everybody was addicted to weed like me. <clears throat> Had my little army blanket. I said, "I'm turning it over, you know." Got about 15 yards and started being obsessed again. And said, "Okay, I'm turning it over again, you know." And it's 34 years later, and I'm still doing that. I'm turning it over, you know. Sometimes it's uh, my children, my grandchildren turning it over. So I went to a talk about uh, alcoholism, the family disease, that uh, John and Pat O'Neill used to give, and I asked John, I said, you know, what should I do? And he said, this is a guy I think you should work with. So he gave me a phone number, and I called and made an appointment. And I started working with Jack. Uh, Jack's dead now, but uh, he helped me a lot. Come how to how to apply the steps in my life, and uh, we got to the fourth step. doing it on a spreadsheet on the computer. I read the big book and answered all the questions that were there about the fourth step, you know, did it in the four columns. Then I went to the 12 and 12, and I read all the questions there and answered all those questions, and printed out two copies and took it to Jack. And he said, you know, this is really nice. I don't usually get to work with something like this. And we sat down and we did my fifth step. guess we'll burn it now I heard stories about people burning them and he said no he said I'm gonna put it in my filing cabinet back here and I can remind you of it anytime you need okay so uh, but before that I would put God on my uh, resentment list because I figured well if there really is a God like I learned about in Sunday school he's responsible for everything and uh, so it's all his fault. And I told my ex-convict high school graduate sponsor that. <laughs> and he demoted me a step. He said, you need to go back to the third step. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I got a book called uh, Came to Believe. The uh, inner group and read that. And, that, and then after that, I did the fourth step and the fifth step with Jack. And eventually, that sponsor asked me to uh, co sign a car loan note for him. And there was a guy from Canada down here speaking at a little conference that I went to, and I Asked him if I could drive him around and show him Austin, and I told him about how my sponsor wanted me to co-sign a car note for him, and he said, you need a new sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) Hope that guy's doing okay. So, step six, we're entirely ready to grab God, remove all these defects of character. I guess, you know, I'm tired of suffering, tired of feeling sorry for myself. I'm tired of having these resentments that are eating my lunch. I'm tired of having these fears that uh, make it hard to enjoy the day. Humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. That's step seven. So I had to get humble and ask. I took a whole step. And then it was made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And my list was mostly the people on my four-step, you know, mom, dad, my brother. (sighs) These people that I had been so resentful at, turns out I owed them an amends. I was expecting too much from people. I didn't know how to love people where they were and accept them for who they were. I had these needs that I wanted them to fulfill, and they weren't up to that. They were on their own mission. And uh, it destroys relationships. We stepped on other people's toes and they retaliate. And then I think I'm a victim. It was time to grow up. So I was talking to Jack about my list of people to make amends to and how to do that. One of the ladies here at the AA told me, she said, I think you need some codependency therapy, too, which was so true. So I got in a group for codependency. It's like a six-week group or something. And we wrote a letter to our parents, and then we'd read the letter to this empty chair and hit the chair with a tennis racket. <laughs> <laughs> There's a name for that kind of therapy. And uh, I thought, well, gosh, I hope I don't have to do that. Getting things out of order a little bit. That was uh, later. So I'm talking to Jack about how to do this night step stuff. And I was telling him about this bank that I had put uh, put some... That put some a couple of hundred dollars in my account incorrectly, and I called them and told them, and they said no. And so I spent it, and then they called me and said they wanted it back. And I said, well, I've already spent it, and I'm a student, that was back when I was in school. uh, They said, well, we know the dean of the law school. We're gonna tell him, and I said, go ahead. I said, I need to make an amends to them. And Jack said, you know, that bank's flipped a couple of times since then. You're just going to create more problems if you go down there and make a deal about that. He said, isn't your first wife coming back to town for your son's high school graduation? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you start with her? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm so grateful to Jack. He really helped me work this program instead of just mess around. So uh, she came back from California and we were having a me and the cult were having a little (laughs) party for my son with nice cake and things and I said can I talk to you for a moment and she said yeah. I said well you know I'm in AA now, I've been sober like Seven months, and they tell me if I if I want to stay sober, I got to make amends to the people I'd harmed. And I realize, I, I, and the background work is that I have to forgive them their part completely, let go of that, and then make amends for my part. So I said. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I realized I wasn't available for our relationship uh, after we left Sherman. I said I, I got drugs, got involved with drugs and alcohol, and work, and uh, I wasn't available for a healthy relationship. And how can I make that right? What could I do? And she said, well, uh, are you better now? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, just keep doing what you're doing. And she went back to California, and I put our boy through college, and uh, that was into end of that. And uh, then she moved back to town, and our boy was having some, health issues, mental health issues, and I called her and told her about it and said maybe it would be good if the three of us went out to have dinner. She said, hell no, you son of a bitch. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Don't you ever call me again. Mm -hmm. So I asked my sponsor. I said, what do you think she meant by that? (laughs) Italian food? (laughs) He said, no. He said, just leave her alone. Okay. So I just left her alone. The next time I saw her, I was my son had gotten married and had a baby and I went into his place to see the baby and she was sitting in the corner holding the baby and she looked up and said, "Hi grandpa." I said, "Hi grandma." That was it. I've got to make my amends. And I got to step back and let God do what God does. And things healed up. Not because of what I was doing, but because I got out of the way and just did my part and cleaned up my side of the street. It didn't happen on my time schedule, but it happened. You know, and that little girl's eight and a half years old now and um, her grandma had some parties for her and invited me and my current girlfriend to come to her house for the parties and it was very nice and she told me how glad she was I had met Katie and how we were perfect for each other and it was just real sweet. and. I'm so glad that I got sober and did the work and got my side of the street clean so that those things could heal up and I could be available for a healthy relationship. So I also made amends to my parents. Um, I did do that codependency group. I remember calling the facilitator and said, "You know, I'm just being a jerk this weekend. I'm grumpy and crabby to everybody." And she said, "Are you ready to write your letter?" And uh, I hadn't wanted to do that because I'd done my night step; didn't need to. So I wrote my letter to mom and dad. This is what I didn't like about when I was a kid: the drinking, the fighting, the yelling, the screaming, and then pretending like everything was fine, and uh, so I read it to the empty chair, and I hit the chair, and my support group was there, and they'd all done it too, and then I went up to Waco for a visit with my parents, and it was the nicest visit I'd had in a long time, because I had gotten that stuff out of me. You know, if you got a resentment, anger, fear, festering in my heart, people are going to know it. Even if I'm thinking I'm putting it aside, it's there, it interferes with the relationship. So I'm glad I got to do that before my parents died. Step 10, 11, and 12 is where I live now. I think those three steps include the first nine steps. I needed the first nine steps to learn how to live in 10, 11, and 12. I needed the support of the group to learn. I needed one-on-one with the sponsor and with Jack to learn. But ultimately, if I was gonna keep working for me, I had to develop a relationship with the God of my understanding. You know, we read it at every meeting and how it works. It was read this evening. Probably no human power could relieve us, relieve our alcoholism. We were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. Probably no human power could relieve our alcoholism. God could and would if sought. Well, you know, when I got here, I didn't even believe in God. I heard that and I thought, oh I'm in trouble. But it's worked out, you know, and I love appendix two in the big book. It's it's titled Spiritual Experience. It's a footnote in the chapter to the agnostic. And it talks about, you know, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to have a spiritual awakening. We're trying to learn how to behave in a way that makes us open to a spiritual awakening. Now, Appendix 2 says, you know, when the book first came out, uh, people got the impression that you've got to have some kind of big, overwhelming event like Bill Wilson had in the hospital when his hospital room lit up with light. And uh, he said that, that, that's not how it is for most of us. Most of us have <clears throat> a spiritual awakening of the educational variety that William James, an American psychologist, writes about in his book, The Variety of Spiritual Experiences. And uh, I read that book. It's a very interesting book. It took me over a year to read it because I could just read a little bit at a time. Appendix 2 says, what's happened for most of us is we've tapped into an unsuspected inner resource that we come to identify as our own conception of a power greater than ourselves. This uh, belief in a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience and our most more religious members call it God consciousness. Well, I had spent most of my life looking for something out there to fix me. A drug, alcohol, a person, a career. And here's Appendix 2 telling me, it says, you, you, it's, it's inside. You got to tap into that unsuspected inner resource. And uh, why well, do you do that? Well, you do it with uh, whatever you can, but step 11 seems to be a big part of that. Prayer and meditation. So when I first got sober, there was a couple of people that wanted to turn me on to meditation and would set a timer, kitchen timer for five minutes. Boy, that's a long time. That's a long time just to sit still and watch my head spin around. <laughs> but uh, that was a start. That was a start. I still use a timer. I like. To know that somebody's gonna say that's enough. <laughs> 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 and I, I like, I can sit it for an hour now. I'm sitting sit in a zero gravity chair and just, you know, when I first start going in, it's like, oh God, I can't believe I'm doing this again. <laughs> and then after a while, time stops. And I'm just breathing in and breathing out. And then, uh, oh, what about so-and-so? No, I'm not gonna think about that right now. Just let that one go by breathing in, breathing out, relaxing, feeling my blood pressure go down. And, uh, you know, when I pray, I ask God to take care of the people that I want to protect my son my granddaughter my partner Katie the Congress of the United States you know all of these things that I don't have any control over and uh, you know I I decided that I wanted to help kids that were in my same spot, and so I started looking into Alateen, being an Alateen sponsor. Now, one of the things that I did when I got sober is there, there was a guy here, and he gave me a cassette tape of a speaker, and uh, I was driving back and forth to Houston working with water districts, and I'd listen to those. Cassette tapes, and I subscribed, and then I got the Al-Anon subscription with the AA subscription, and I listened to those speakers, and you know those Al-Anon speakers made a lot of sense. Uh, it's a family disease. You don't have to drink to have the disease of alcoholism, and uh, so I. had a little Al-Anon, and Alatine is part of Al-Anon, and uh, they told me, uh, I signed up for this camp to get certified as an Alateen sponsor, and they said, well, where do you go to Al-Anon meetings? And I said, well, I don't go to Al-Anon meetings per se. I listen to these speaker tapes, uh, and they said, well, you got to go to Al-Anon regularly for two years before you can be an Alateen sponsor. I said, well, okay, I'll I'll give it a try. So I started going to Al-Anon over at the 617 Foundation and a couple of places, and uh, I've been going ever since. You know, I go to like three meetings a week, and it's really helped me uh, give up trying to control people, places, and things that I can't control. And one of the first things I learned in Al-Anon was how to let go with love instead of let go with resentment or let go with fear or let go with anger. And somebody explained the other day that uh, letting go with love is letting go with God. Pat Clater used to say that. I used to come to AA meetings with her husband, Jack Clater. So, that leads us to step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of watching a lot of movies, no. (laughs) Reading a lot of books, no. working these steps, doing the work, and getting help on how to do the work. We tried to carry this message. So <clears throat> we don't get a lot of kids at our meeting, our Alateen me- mu- meeting, but uh, Monday, some social worker showed up with this little girl that uh, was 15 and had been taken out of her home, and she'd been acting out and drinking and drugging, and we had a great allotene meeting and then uh, since she was using, I'll share a little bit about my using. We've also had kids come that uh, don't use at all and wonder why their parents do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we talked to them about how You don't have to get sucked into it. You didn't cause it. You can't control it. You can't cure it. And uh, you can put your attention somewhere else when that starts going on. I remember I wanted to always control it and fix it. I don't. So, carry the message to alcoholics. So when Marilyn invited me to come here and tell my recovery story, I said, uh, sure, and I hope I've carried to you this evening the message of how I recovered from the family disease of alcoholism. But there's more to that. Step twelve is practice these principles in all our affairs, and it's a daily thing. I gotta do it every day. You know, I, I woke up a couple of years ago thinking, you know, I just really ought to kill myself. This is way too much. So I went to a 6 a.m. meeting. Well, no, first I prayed. God, what do you think? No, not today. (laughs) I said, don't worry about that. I'm going to take care of it. When I gave you your birthday suit, I set it up. It's going to happen. You don't have to worry about it. So, oh, well, that's nice. That's one less thing I have to worry about. And I went to a meeting and I, I talked about that and I shared that. That helped. I remember when I first got sober, They said, you don't have to do this alone, and I remember I called one of those suicide hotlines instead of getting drunk, and they asked me about what it was like when I was a kid, and we talked about it a while, and I felt better, and I didn't have to do anything crazy that day. And then just a couple of weeks ago—no, a couple of weeks—less than a week ago, the dadgum air conditioner quit working. And it got hot, and I was trying to figure out how am I gonna put a new window unit in, the living room, the big one like it takes, and I, I'm not the man I used to be, you know. And I thought, you know, the ice maker's still working. I could get a glass of ice and a bottle of whiskey and pour some of that whiskey over the ice and drink that. And maybe that would clear up my thinking and I could figure out how to do this air conditioner. (laughs) And I said, You know, that just doesn't seem right. Let's think this through. You drink the whiskey, Uh, you can't stop once you start. Because I'm an alcoholic. You know, I don't have a couple and then say, I don't want any more. I'm starting to feel it. Mm -hmm. I say, Geronimo! Let's go!" (laughs) And uh, maybe get in the car and go kill somebody with the car. It just happened a couple of blocks from my house two nights ago. I said, so, uh, you're not going to be able to stop, and you're going to wake up sick with a hangover, and the air conditioner's still going to be broken. (laughs) There's got to be a better plan than that, Billy. (laughs) So I talked to Katie about it, and uh, we went to Home Depot and got a new air conditioner. It was big. And they had a young man, strong young man there to carry it out to the car. He, He used a little wagon. And we got it home and we put it on my little red wagon. And we got it in the house, and then I went off to a meeting, and I came back, and we put it in, and the house is cooled off now. And I didn't have to drink any whiskey to get it done. Hooray! Uh. And you don't have to drink any whiskey either, ever again. And if you're an alcoholic like me, that might be a good idea. Thank you very much.